So first, I just want to congratulate you, obviously, on being appointed president of ACCC. That's a big deal. Just to kick us off, can you share your your president's theme for the 2019-2020 tenure and how it will shape your leadership goals? No, my president's theme, again, is really kind of a, a discussion over many years about what's happening. Some of these are underlying themes with ACCC members. So our theme is to collaborate, educate, and compensate. It's a prescription for sustainable care delivery. And really we're focusing on collaboration as one of the major themes, and collaboration really is among the healthcare team members. We often think of the physician as the main component, but now we're seeing these layers of integration for the treating oncologist. So we have members who are, for example, molecular pathologists, physicians involved in deciding the diagnosis of the treatment of care based on the new molecular techniques coming out. So we have biomarkers, we have genetic areas being developed, we have fusion proteins. So things which were highlighted 10, 20 years ago are now integral members of teams. We have financial advocates. In order to get these patients the drug therapy or even the genomic test, they're interwoven into our current healthcare team membership. We also have advanced practitioners, pharmacists, all delineating across the broad spectrum of care in the overall cancer environment. So we have multiple layers and multiple facets, and those are just a few of the people I uh, discussed. There's coordinators, nurse navigators, all these different pieces are part of the puzzle for optimal patient care. And so that collaboration really provides patient outcomes in the cancer center, and that's one of the discussions on the actual collaboration piece where we're focusing on too. And I'm sure that extends even further to the uh, the end of life individuals as well, right? I mean, Absolutely. We're talking about genomics. Care, genomics, you know, right. talking about genomics, the genomics now is, has really taken its own facet, right? Yeah. We actually know that we're treating these patients based on fusion proteins, like an NTREC inhibition. We have FGF therapies approved and also up and coming, for example, cholangio, um, where we're going to see this actually pop up in extensive utilization. We also know that there's certain mutation characteristics which will actually be binding in regards to, you know, for example, we have MEK and BRAF, BRAF inhibitors in these cases. We'll be using that for colorectal cancer and any type of cancer which shows up. BRCA mutations, where we have BRCA, we'll be using PARP inhibitors. So we're really seeing that already with pancreatic and a field of disease states moving forward. So the overall idea of actually treating the cancer based on a few classical cytotoxic chemotherapies has changed. And that's where we're seeing a lot of integration with, you know, genomic-based medicine. We have our molecular pathologists, which I mentioned. All these are changing the current dynamic of healthcare, because we're not only treating the disease now, we're treating the mutational load of that disease, whether it's a TMB, looking at PD-L1 expression with immunotherapy, or looking at a fusion protein, like an NTREC inhibition, where we're treating that patient based on the mutational load uh, for the actual disease state. That actually kind of brings me into what I wanted to ask you about, and that's sort of sustainable and patient-centered care. So what is your perspective on the role of multidisciplinary clinical pathways or standardized care and the blending of standardized care and individual patient-centered care? Is there, is there a common ground? Because, you know, at first glance, they seem to be a bit of friction just in between finding a, a, a meeting point for standardizing care and treating an individual patient. What do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? We wouldn't probably say it's multidisciplinary pathways for treatment. We would probably say um, modalities for treatment. We have multi, multiple disciplinaries involved, so we actually have multiple healthcare team members involved. Right. So if that's the case, you know, we all have our roles, and sometimes those roles change, right? And we also have to address 
new methods for alternative payment models and what they're looking at too. So when we look at alternative payment models or oncology care models, all of these actually have a role. And some of these roles are actually, you know, and again, not being looked at for how that is actually addressed. And what I mean by that is uncompensated care, looking at the compensation piece. So all of these members have roles here, but how do we address pulling all those people together? How do we actually help pay and address the overall care for a nurse navigator? How do we actually help understand? And this is not really kind of a payment model discussion, really. It's actually addressing that cost associated to take care of that patient. So that's that compensation piece. You know, looking at their overall roles, they all have a regulated piece in that care model. When we talk about alternative payment models and also other areas we're looking at, you know, we have our nurse navigators addressing the navigation of the patients. There are certain metrics which they address to make sure those patients are continuing their care and also distress screenings. How does that work up? Depression screenings. We have our nurse coordinators in clinic addressing the patient care, uh, making sure that patient is actually being seen, having to- you know, tox checks you know, to make sure they're not actually having any issues with their chemotherapy. We have oral MTM pharmacists where the pharmacist is addressing adherence for those patients to make sure they have the appropriate outcome, but also addressing, for example, if they're having side effect profiles or other measures too. So that makes those patients who are in oral chemotherapy not coming into the clinic, you know, for IV chemotherapy, addressing that. Mm-hmm. We also have our financial navigators. You know, ACCC has done a fantastic job with their financial advocacy network, our FAN network. In fact, we know that in order to get those patients on chemotherapy treatment, to get them uh, moving forward with copay assistance, a lot of those patients won't have that ability if we didn't have those members involved. Mm. And that can include looking at patient assistance for any type of biomarker analysis or next year sequencing, oral or IV chemotherapies, just to start off in that discussion, you know, let alone looking at transportation issues, housing if they're coming from a longer area. All of this key pieces, you know, C has done, I think, an incredible job in addressing some of these key financial discussions. That fan network helps build a foundation for where we can all move forward to address those patient outcome models. Because if the patient can't arrive at the clinic, we can't treat them. Mm. If they can't get their scan, we don't know what's happening with their disease, right? Um, We also have to address a number of other issues, including housing in some cases, and um, other issues as well in regards to their treatment. So these are some of the things that you have to deal with. That was never included in part of the model for care, right? We don't say, you know, here, here's the drug, we're actually prescribing the drug, you go get it. Nowadays, copay assistance, foundation assistance. If it's off-label, how do we get the drug to the patient? You know, do they meet certain criteria? All take time. And this is one of those key important pieces for the financial advocacy network, too. While we're on this discussion of considering all patient you know, characteristics and sustainable care, really just uh, patient-centered care, how do biosimilars fit into the equation? We're not seeing a high uptake in, in having them come to the market. So is there a place for biosimilars in, in, this, in this new way that we're, we're approaching patient care? So we talked about collaboration. We talked about compensation. The other part is education. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the key focus pieces will be education on biosimilars. You know, that's just one of the pieces for the education area. You know, C has a large number of members um, around the country who are integrating new therapies and also new types of therapies into their practice, whether it's a small practice or a large practice or part of a health system. The education piece, one of those pieces is biosimilars. The issue that we're looking at, kind of a 
making it as succinct as possible, is the fact that we have seen a lot of litigation prevent those biosimilars from entering the market. Well, don't even forget, just take a step back. Filgrastim Sandoz was approved. It took over six months to get that drug out onto the market, so we had a six-month delay. We also know there's current delays right now with some of those biosimilars where we actually we have several FDA-approved, you know, for example, bevacizumabs, I think trastuzumab also in these cases too, which won't come out until 2020. So if we don't have access, we can't utilize these therapies. And in addition, we have several supportive care drug therapies in the oncology arena. We have filgrastin, right? We have filgrastin sandos, and also filgrastin, I think it's AAFI. Those two are biosimilars. We have TBO filgrastin in the market, which is actually a biologic in the U.S., a biosimilar in Europe. This was due to their pathway. So there's three right there, if you think about it that way. We have two new lasses out in the market. We have one by Myelin and one by Coherus. Those are currently in the market, too. So that's five right there. Now, if we're talking about other therapies like infliximab, those are coming out, alumumab coming out, reticrit, that's also out. You can include reticrit either in non-oncology or oncology, depending on how you use it. So that's six oncology right now that's currently on the market. Okay? But yet, there are some on the market which are approved but not released yet. So you're looking at 2020. So really, 2020 will most likely be the year of the biosimilar. <laughs> and it's true. We have approvals this year. But 2020, we're going to see a mass integration into our current healthcare system for this. We will look for several rituximabs, four or five trastuzumabs, wow. several bevacizumabs. So we may actually have the big three. And I say the big three, rituximab, trastuzumab, bevacizumab. These are our big three we're going to hit in the biological market. There'll be some more sensitive discussions when it comes to curative therapy intent, such as with our rituximab and trastuzumab, about whether or not there'll be scrutiny for utilization as well. But when we start looking into the future, we'll also have to address other therapies that come up. You know, nivolumumab, our PD-1s, those will be biosimilar several years from now. We're looking at a much farther picture. You're looking at pergetta, pertuzumab, where will that fall into place as well? So looking into the future across the board, we will have multiple layers of these therapies and how the U.S. healthcare system reacts to this will be important. You know, there'll be many discussions about um, if biosimilars will be implemented. You know, if you don't use a biosimilar, it only leads to higher costs for the patients. So it'll be very interesting to see if a biosimilar is not allowed to be used for patients, if those higher costs to the patients in the end uh, will actually motivate more people to use biosimilars in these cases. So we'll also see how payers react. So will payers actually prevent biosimilarization as well?